The Unlikely Innovators with Mike Comito and Steve Gravel. Presented by Cambrian R&D and the Center for Smart Mining. Mike, I just climbed up 7,000 feet from the bottom of Creighton Mine, and boy, are my legs tired. Yeah, it would have taken probably a couple days if you had to make that trek. Isn't that right? Yeah. Well, yeah, and of course, um, this isn't the same day we went to Snow Lab, but uh, we wanted to, ju- to jump on and, and tell you just how uh, fantastic it was to interview uh, Jody Cooley uh, from Snow Lab. It was just a fantastic visit. Our first on-location shoot of a uh, podcast episode. And uh, and I thought it was just a uh, once in a lifetime opportunity. It really was like I uh, I kind of pinching myself uh, that we were able to do that again. Snow Lab is a world class research facility. I know that not a lot of people get to go down there. So, I mean, for us to be able to go down there um, to be able to shoot that podcast and talk to somebody like like Dr. Jody Cooley um, was was great. Uh, As you'll hear in the episode, we just kind of dove in. And started chatting with Jody underground, uh, which again, I think it's important to note that not only did we come out of, of Creighton Mine, not not by the way that you mentioned through uh, through having to take the ladder system through various drifts, but we did ride the cage up. But because we were 2K below ground, it's not an official Guinness record, but we're calling it a world record. So if you if you think there's been a podcast that's been recorded deeper than ours, you're lying. But if there is, let us know. And we'll have to find a way to get down below that 6,800 foot level <laughs> and do another podcast. But we didn't get to give Jody a proper bio. So I was going to do that now before maybe we go into the conversation. So uh, for those tuning in now, Dr. Jody Cooley is the executive director at Snow Lab. She started her duties uh, August 1st, 2022. So we were able to catch her uh, on one of the coldest days of the year. So she starts her duties in August. And mm. then the day that we recorded, I think it must have been minus 40 with the windshield, but it was nice and toasty underground. Uh, but Dr. Jody Cooley has been a professor, associate professor, and assistant professor of physics at Southern Methodist University from 2009 to 2022. She's a graduate of the University of Wisconsin-Madison and the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee. She has a postdoctoral associate at the uni- at Massachusetts Institute of Technology, MIT, you might have heard of it and a postdoctoral scholar at Stanford University, also might have heard of it, before taking up her post at SMU. Uh, Dr. Cooley is an award-winning physicist and physics communicator. Among her many awards at SMU, Dr. Cooley earned the Klobsteg Memorial Lecture Award from the American Association of Physics Teachers in 2019, recognizing outstanding communication of contemporary physics to the general public, and was elected Fellow of the American Association for the Advancement of Science in 2018 for contributions to the search for dark matter scattering with nuclei, particularly using cryogenic technologies. And lastly, Dr. Cooley has been a member of the Super CDMS Snow Lab collaboration since 2014 and has served as Deputy Operations Manager since 2019. And then, of course, add to that brilliant CV, guest on the Unlikely Innovators. Yeah, it's really her crowning achievement. (laughs) (laughs) No, I mean, uh, again, uh, we'll go right into the episode in a moment here, but... uh... Uh, maybe afterwards, uh, we'll be able to reflect on some of our experiences there. But uh, here's uh, Dr. Jody Cooley. Well, good morning, Jody. Thanks for joining us on the Unlikely Innovators. Uh, it's safe to say that the podcast has reached new lows this week, but that's a good thing. We're uh, coming at you uh, 2K Underground at Snow Lab. And uh, we're going to talk about Snow Lab and all the fantastic work that's happening here. But before we do that, we wanted to kind of ask you some questions about yourself. We always like to ask our guests to start with, you know, w- what did you envision for yourself when you were growing up? But I-, I think the question here, since we are at Snow Lab, is were you always drawn to science at an early age? Is this what you thought you would do when, when you were younger? 
So first, let me thank you so much for inviting me on your podcast. It's really great to be here talking with you guys. I always love to talk science um, with, with people. So it turns out that actually I probably am not your, your typical story. I did not grow, grow up thinking I always was going to be a scientist. Um, my mother actually graduated from high school and my dad has a GED. So um, I'm the first person in my family, even extended family, to go to college. Um, so perhaps unlikely, it was important for my mom that we went there. Um, she didn't care what we did, but we, we needed to get degrees. It was important to her that we did education. So um, I actually didn't really fall into science until the fifth year of first semester of my fifth year of my undergraduate education that I said, you know what, I think I want to do physics and I'll go to graduate school for physics. So um, I'm also probably the most scary person that you ever could put in front of a parent who has um, a wayward child who's, who's not following the right path because I, I certainly did not. <laughs> well, I think that you're actually more of a typical story of our podcast guests because typically it's an unlikely journey where oftentimes, you know, they may have thought they'd want to go in a certain area and then they find a different path and it leads to great things. But yeah, it's, uh, that's awesome. Uh, we were trying to be as minimalist as possible on the gear, so Mike and I are passing this microphone back and uh, forth, but that's okay. Um, so an interest in science, you know, can lead you in a lot of directions. For you, it, it led to astro... How did, that la how did that lead to, like, astrophysics and then dark matter? I mean, that's, is that a straight line, or, or is there some, some uh, you know, bows in that river along the way? Oh, so this is also, you know, kind of interesting. It kind of goes back to deciding sort of late that I wanted to go do a PhD in physics, which, you know, ironically was kind of because my friends were doing it. And in that sort of last-ish year of, of college, I started hanging out with a, some students who were working on their PhD in physics. And I thought, this looks kind of fun. I think I, I'd like to do this. And so um, as I went to graduate school, my background in physics was a little bit weaker, as you might imagine, than a typical PhD physics student. Um, and so when I got to graduate school, I knew that when I, I had applied to a lot of schools because I figured I was going to get rejected from a lot and I wanted to have some choice. Um, so when I was going around visiting schools, talking with various faculty, faculty members who might be mentors, um, I realized that when I really got excited was when we were talking astrophysics. So that's how I knew I wanted to do astrophysics. I didn't really care what astrophysics it was. I just wanted to do astrophysics. So I ended up at the University of Wisconsin in Madison, where they had this neutrino telescope buried at the South Pole. Um, and I happened to win um, a, a little scholarship that would fund me for the summer to work with a research group. And their group had an opening and was willing to take me on. So I was like, great, I'm joining. Um, and so that, that was the start of it. So I went into uh, neutrino astronomy on this Amanda experiment, which then now, you know, it, it continues. It's made some really great and interesting discoveries of neutrinos coming from like black holes and really cool stuff. Um, that telescope now has grown in size and is now called Ice Cube. It, it encompasses a cubic kilometer of ice. And, um, and in Canada, so I'm going to draw this back to Canada because Canada is pretty awesome. Canada is now trying to get into this uh, neutrino telescope game. And uh, they're looking at buildings with oceans neck, neck Oceans Network Canada, uh, this project called P1, which would put a neutrino telescope essentially in water, so not nice, but um, yeah, so it's pretty cool. So that's how I ended up there. I was going to make uh, Ice Cube the rapper joke, but I'm going to leave that alone and maybe we'll do it in the intro later. 
that's, uh, it's, you're exercising some restraint today, so that's yeah, great. Yeah, 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 yeah. But but obviously, one of the things we wanted to ask about was, you know, I know that Steve and I look like we could probably explain dark matter, but uh, but clearly we can't. So I think for for our viewers and and listeners that are tuning in right now. How, how would you explain dark matter? Because that's obviously a big part of, of some of the research that's happened at Snow Lab and is continuing to happen here. So I like to compare dark matter to like your checking account and your bank card, okay? So out there in the universe, like we can actually take an inventory of the amount of matter in the universe. And then using telescopes and a variety of other means of analysis, we can figure out like how much matter can we actually observe? And if you subtract the matter that we can observe from the total amount of matter that's supposed to be there, turns out we can only observe about 15% of it. So 85% of it is missing. So imagine if you took your ATM card, or I guess you guys call it a, a bank card. You take your ABM card, yes, ABM card to, uh, to the bank, you tap it there, you're expecting there to be $100 in your account and there's only 15, you're gonna be like, what the heck? Yeah. I mean, that's exactly how I feel about this matter, like, you know, it's like I went to the, the automated bank machine and like, where, where's my money? Where's 85% where's, where's of this matter? What is it, where is it, what happened to it? So it's, it's kind of an accounting problem. Okay, I like it. I think there's also a way for me to maybe use that as when my wife asked me why, why was the credit card bill so high this month, I was doing an experiment and you know what? It turns out I was missing some money in my bank account. So. Yeah, I mean, it almost makes the folks. It's I'm taking the uh, I'm taking the uh, the metaphor far too far now. I think, but it almost makes the folks at uh, Snow Lab the forensic accountants of to of the dark matter problem. Um, so you've studied obviously before before joining Snow Lab uh, at uh, Stanford, MIT, SMU, really world class you know, somewhat household names even in Canada institutions. But now you're at Snow Lab, which is also a, a world class facility. What Can you just reflect on that experience and how it's been uh, joining the team here? You know, Leading I have to say, yeah, it's, it's, it, to me, it's a dream job. Like, can you imagine that you get to lead, like, the leading lab in the world for underground science? I mean, that that's really awesome. And I think one of the things I find really cool about Snow Lab, too, is that, yeah, we're really into astrophysics, we're into neutrino physics. These are fields that I, that I had, had done. So I actually, you know, I guess maybe this is going backwards in our conversation, but um, you know, I talked about how what I did as a graduate student to get my PhD. But after I left my PhD, I actually went to work on this little experiment over in Japan. Um, it was called a uh, Super K, and you you might remember you guys have this physicist here. His name's Art McDonald. Mm. Won a, won a little prize for some pretty exciting Just things. Just a small in, prize. Yeah. yeah, exciting things in physics. It turns out I worked on the competing experiment that shared that Nobel Prize with him. Um, so there's like been these parallels, I feel like, to Snow Lab throughout my whole career. You know, from there, that's when I jumped into dark matter, working on this experiment called CDMS. We decided we needed a bigger experiment, so we called it Super CDMS. And we're building it here, actually, in this mine in Canada. So I remember the first time I visited this, line, uh, this mine um, in this lab, it was brand spanking new. Not an experiment in sight, vast, cavernous, full of potential. And to be able to walk in it today, it is, I mean, you guys can see, it's, yeah. it's jam-packed, like we're, we're using hallways for storage at this point. And, uh, and we have a lot of demand. It's just so exciting. It's, it's just really a great place to be. I'm so happy to be here. 
We're very happy to be here today, too. We almost keep forgetting that we're 2K underground. It's just it doesn't seem like you're underground. It's yeah, it's just an incredible facility. We haven't had the tour yet. So, I mean, this is an exciting part of the day to talk to you, but we're looking forward to the tour after. And, you know, obviously, there's a lot of exciting research and work that's happening here at Snow Lab, and there's a lot of different experiments. One of the ones we wanted to ask you about is I know that right now, uh, Snow Lab's embarking on an investigation to see how living cells respond to, you know, the harsh uh, radiation environment in outer space. So, wondering if you can talk a little bit about that, but also, Aside from you know the research uh, outcomes of that, what does that mean for for everyday life for us that aren't necessarily in this world every day? Uh, yeah, some great questions. So, um, the research that's being done underground here it's called um, there's actually two projects that are, that are biology based, but the one I think you're referring to is called Repair. And so the idea is is we know that if you're in a high radiation environment, that is bad for your cells, right? It's bad for your cells. It's bad for your health. Um, and there's, there's actually quite a bit of research and study into that. But the question I think that has had a lot less attention to it is, what happens if you have very low radiation? Like, is there a, is, is there, is there a benefit to some amount of radiation? So if having too little radiation, also a problem. That's what the repair um, project is all about, trying to understand. So you're bringing cells in, in, in various forms, you know, through at, at the cellular level underground and seeing what does a very low radiation environment mean for, for that sort of research. And this research is, um, you know, so it started some time ago and it, it continues and now it's actually even being tied to the Artemis project. So this idea of returning to the moon, uh, they're going to be bringing a science module uh, that has some yeast cells in it and we're going to have here underground some of the same yeast cells and they're going to have them on the surface and they're going to be able to compare you know how are these yeast cells evolving and what impacts does high doses of radiation surface levels doses of radiation and low levels of radiation have on each other so i think that's that's kind of cool yeah i, I would say so <laughs> yeah i would say it's kind of cool for sure <laughs> yeah it's interesting because i mean us sort of surface dwellers, you know, we are used to that background radiation bombardment constantly. So what is the impact when, when that's gone? Well, I don't know that I can speak to that because yeah. I'm not sure if those results have been published yet. Yeah. Well, <laughs> I, we, I have to, that's something I might have to ask we, my team about. We would be indebted to you if you broke news like that on our podcast, but we won't, uh, we won't expect you to do that. Um, so you've been in the role for, for a little while now. And um, I guess from a science perspective or just from a facility perspective, uh, and you have some background uh, familiarity with Snow Lab before you came here. Um, was there anything that like surprised you or that's like a neat thing, even if it's mundane or, or uh, sort of just a process thing that you, you weren't expecting that's, uh, that's of interest uh, when, you, when you came in? That's a great question. I had not thought too much about that, but I can say after this morning, I can say, finally, the weather you guys promised me is here. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Yeah, no, you know, I, I know this is this is really mundane because it really has nothing to do with Snow Lab. It's more of a Sudbury thing. So um, my spouse and I have been sharing a car since, what, two, I don't know. I mean, essentially since we've been at Stanford. Like we, in Boston, we realized we didn't need two and cars. And it started this morning? And, and no, no, no. When we got, it's a, you know, I'm starting to realize that, you know, 
having two cars might actually be a big advantage that that, yeah. that being one car is is maybe maybe it is a little bit more difficult than than i thought it would, would would be so i think we may be investing a second car but that's not really snow lab related so much as it is like yeah you we'll know how <laughs> you know how often do i want to get up at four o'clock in the morning to drive them to work yeah. <laughs> and it's not going to be a well it's not going to be a pickup truck i don't know if you saw on the way in everyone drives a pickup truck here. so this is the best part i get a lot of crap around here because we have an electric car and i just you know everybody today the question was did your car start? <laughs> and and everybody's always always waiting for for something terrible to happen. It's a compact car. It's electric. And I just say, look, if I can't get through on that car, then should I really be out driving? Maybe I maybe I can just stay home. <laughs> well, if, if it could start today, it could start any day. Again, if uh, for those tuning in, it was I think minus forty Celsius with the wind chill this morning. So the coldest morning we've had in Sudbury by far this winter. Uh, it's actually supposed to be much nicer uh, on, on the weekend, but but anyway, I digress. Yeah, no, Sudbury is definitely a driving town and definitely a two-car town. Uh, my wife and I made do with one car for the longest time while I was going to grad school, and then once I got a, a job at Cambrian, um, you know, and you're going to different locations, yeah, it's it adds to your commute when you've got to drop somebody off, but, uh, but yeah. One of the questions we had to ask you, because we had a little bit of help uh, sleuthing your bio, and so one of your former students, uh, Bryson DeChambeau, he's a professional golfer. He has eight wins under his belt on the PGA Tour. How much of his success, his success do you credit to your teaching? Very, very little. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, you know, without divulging too much, um, so Bryson was a student of mine. I did have him in a couple of classes, and I was his academic advisor. And, and at the time, um, I would say, let me, let me back up a little bit. I, I myself went to school on an athletic scholarship, and I saw a lot of athletes who, who really thought they were going to make it into the Olympics, and they were, I mean, these are fantastic people. They, their abilities are, you know, beyond us average people. But, um, but, you know, a lot of times, you know, it could come at the risk of, of perhaps, you know, not following up on the academics as much. Um, and so I remember having a conversation with him in my office once, you know, as we were mapping out his semester and, you know, his, his golfing and stuff. And I remember, um, you know, being really concerned, like making sure that he had a plan, a backup plan in case this golf thing didn't work out. Um, and I have to, at the time, I had no idea. I had no comprehension of, of the level um, of golfer that he, he actually was. But I, I remember you know, sort of it, it kind of being funny because here I am like, let's just make sure you have a backup yeah. plan. <laughs> he was all set. He was set, but he, but he was a fantastic student. I, yeah, yeah. I, I think, you know, he really was interested in golf. He was interested in kind of the physics of golf. He had this whole idea of like, all your golf clubs should be the same length versus, you know, oftentimes your irons are shorter and your drivers are longer. And so he had this whole thing that, that, that he, he had thought out and he wanted to understand. And clearly it's working really well for him. I haven't quite been able to figure out golf, so maybe I should try that because whatever <laughs> I'm doing now, it's not working. But, but I wanted to ask you, so you said you were a varsity athlete. What was your sport? I was a long distance runner. Oh, really? I know it doesn't no, show, no. but no, <laughs> yeah, no. I ran a cross country and track. Oh, cool. Yeah. I, uh, I swam varsity at, uh, at Laurentian. Steve played football. So we've got a couple yeah. few varsity athletes here, but anyway. <laughs> yeah, we're just a bunch of jocks hanging out here in a in a, <laughs> in a science lab. In a science lab yeah. <laughs> uh, but that actually, uh, it's an interesting transition to what we wanted to ask you. We'll 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 sort of use the vehicle of uh, of uh, of Bryson to sort of and bear with me on this question. 
uh, because it, it will make sense by the time I get to the end of it. Um, but his nickname was The Scientist, yep. and it still is uh, as a golfer. Um, there was a Washington Post article that, uh, that claimed that he had a linebacker's body, though. And one of the things that we find interesting, you know, in our travels, and, and Mike and I hosting the podcast, is that scientists really come in every shape and size. Uh, do you think, like, people like Bryson, you know, like, we still need to challenge that stereotype, you know, that, like, not everyone, you know, wears glasses and is in a white lab coat and, you know, the typical nerd look. Like, yeah. the science, scientific minds can come from anywhere, right? Yeah, no, no, definitely. And I know that, you know, there have been studies, and, and these are probably maybe a bit dated now, but where they would go into, to like, elementary schools and stuff and ask kids to draw a picture of a scientist, and it always comes out with a lab coat um, and, you know, and, and being kind of male and probably, probably more Caucasian. Uh, than, than, than we would really like. Uh, so I think it's really, you know, it's wonderful having someone of the caliber um, of, of golfer, of just, and having the platform of Bryson to be able to champion science. And I think, you know, that, that's really great. Um, it's also, I think, really important that, that people are constantly seeing uh, scientists around them. It is a, it is a thing that, um, I remember when I was, um, you know, in school back in the day, and you know, might be hanging out at a social engagement and, you know, if someone would come up to introduce themselves to me and it was kind of, I was kind of annoyed by them, I would, I would tell them that my major was physics and, and if I wanted the conversation to go, keep going, I told them I was an astronomer. <laughs> so I, I understand uh, definitely there is a, a perception out there, um, but it's really unfortunate because, you know, I think scientists are really diverse. There really is a diverse body shapes, forms, things they do. You know, I was kind of embarrassed being an athlete as a scientist, and most people would be proud to be an athlete and maybe embarrassed to be a scientist. I don't know, <laughs> but it's kind of fun. Fair enough. Yeah, no, that's, uh, that's great. And I know that we've already covered, you know, we talked about Sudbury and how cold it was today and that it's a driving town unquestionably, but obviously you've had the chance to live in a variety of different states, you know, through the course of your academic journey. Um, beyond the, the, the bitter cold that we're feeling today, what are some of your initial thoughts about, about coming to Sudbury? And, and is there anything you've taken away so far about, about the town? So I really, I really love Sudbury. So I grew up in northern Wisconsin. Like, you know, like, you know, your parents put you on the list to get Packers tickets, you know, when you're born <laughs> for season tickets. Um, and, you know, living around the various places that I've lived, I have to say I feel most at home in Sudbury. And I think, you know, I really love what I would call kind of a balance. Like there's a lot of nature, there's great hiking, there's great stuff to do outside. Um, there are, you know, what I would call really nice, good restaurants to go to. Uh, there's, there's a little bit of everything. Um, and, and I really enjoy that a lot. I think, you know, the fact that you, you know, have so many lakes and stuff around, it's, it's really kind of marvelous. I, I really, I just love it here. That's all I can say. I just, I really feel at home. I feel like this is a place I, I just really want to be. And I'm just happy that, that Snow Lab decided to have me. <laughs> oh yeah, we're, we're happy as well. It's such a great, great spot. Yeah, I mean, obviously, uh, I would have loved to have been one of those kids to get Packers tickets. I'm a, <laughs> I'm a, I'm a huge football fan. Uh, um, obviously, the Favre years, and then and then yeah. now, you know, you we've know, been spoiled with quarterbacks. My mom canceled Christmas one year because she had tickets, box seat tickets to the Packer game, and we all had to drive 
from Park Falls, four hours over to Green Bay yeah. to, uh, <laughs> to the watch the game. Tundra. Exactly, on yeah, Christmas yeah. Day. <laughs> yeah, that's something that I think still eludes me. Going to the, you know, you can go to the new stadiums and yeah. that's fine, but you know, those really sort of historic places is, is sort of where it's at. But, um, you know, we can't stay underground forever. You were so generous with your time. Uh, it was awesome to be down here and to uh, to have this talk with you, and uh, we're indebted to you for 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 joining us today. It was it was a great chat. Well, thanks thank thanks so for much. being on the show. Yeah, thank thanks. you so much. Thank you. Well, that was great. Again, I think the visuals for this episode, if you're if you're watching it, I think kind of gives you a. Uh, a taste of what it was like underground. I think one of the things that I kind of want to reflect on in my experience was that, you know, you're going underground because you're in a cage and it's ripping down at breakneck speeds uh, with other people who are down there to go to work. Uh, I think that's the key thing is that you and I were going down there for a lark to record a podcast as part of our day jobs. But uh, these folks that do this every day, like that's just part of their schedule. Right. So I think one uh, where I was going with this was that, you know, you're going underground, but once you're underground at snow lab and you get into the facility and it's a very clean facility because of the research that they do, you almost forget that you're two K below the earth's surface. <laughs> Absolutely. Like you're, you're walking through these, these labs and you know, it's, there's a lot of headroom and you're, you're looking at experiments that are like a couple stories high. And then you're like, Oh, wait a minute. Like I'm two K underground. Uh, did you have any of those thoughts as we were going through that? You kind of had to remind yourself that, wait a minute, uh, there's only one way up uh, <laughs> to get out of this place. Well, one thing I will say is, um, and uh, some of the listeners might know my obsession with uh, well-designed bathroom facilities. <laughs> um, I will reflect in a moment on the shower situation because it's one thing I wasn't able to find too much literature on. So maybe this could be a document <laughs> for people who are visiting Snow Lab in the future. Um, but for sure i felt i felt the same way you know we're walking through there and uh and a huge shout out to blair flynn and mike whitehouse who squired us uh through the facility mm -hmm. um but uh you forget where you are you're having such good discussions and then you're like well we have to leave now because we have to make a 1.4 kilometer walk to the cage you have to wait for the cage uh and then you got to ride the cage up and uh, that's when it hits home again and what i found funny mike is they wait um for the walk back when we're waiting for the cage to tell you about the stories yeah. of uh, of how <laughs> they've been stuck down there before and had to wait till 1 a.m. for the, the cage to start working. And I appreciate that they did because it would be very tough to still make the trek knowing that that does happen, in, however, infrequently. I reminded that individual that I think that was a, a story that was better suited for surface uh, yeah. rather than when we were still underground waiting for the cage. Uh, again, <laughs> I, I think I probably divulged on the show that I have... Uh, a fear of heights that I feel has been getting, I've been getting better at over the last few months. So I was able to ride the cage down. No problem. Claustrophobia is a little bit of a thing that I've developed in my older age. Uh, I didn't have any of it like while we were going through the mine, because again, I think uh, anybody who's been underground knows how big the environment actually is. And then if you go to a place like snow lab, like you are mm -hmm. wearing PPE, but you, you kind of forget that you are underground, but nevertheless, I still don't like the idea of being stuck underground somewhere with like no point of egress or um so when they shared the story that they were underground until uh, they said like they didn't get home until two in the morning and the power yeah. was out was the other kicker to the story so it was completely Dark. black <laughs> uh they said they were in a refuge station and they were taking turns putting on their cap lamps to conserve uh battery there so that's kind of my nightmare 
Um, <laughs> but like while they were sharing the story as we're waiting for the cage, I'm just kind of deliberately trying to zone out because I'm not really interested in in reliving that story. But uh, but all that to say, we're recording this on surface in our offices, in the comfort of our offices. Uh, so we made it out uh, exactly when we were supposed to. But again, I just think it gave me a better appreciation for the work that goes on underground. Again, we mm-hmm. talk about critical minerals and how important all of that is going to be to to our economy and to new technologies. And again, I think that you know people associate you know a lot of the work that's done underground with high tech technology that does this autonomously or remotely or through teleop. But there's still a lot of actual labor that goes into that, and we saw that firsthand. So I think again, shout out to the to the men and women that do that every that every day ride that cage and do their shifts underground. Um, yeah, that was kind of one of the things that struck me as well. Yeah, and we got to see, I, I won't go too much into it, but there, we even got to see a little uh, disagreement between a couple of miners. <laughs> uh, so now I've been calling everyone partner because they uh, they were using that vernacular. Okay, I'm going to I'm gonna end my thoughts on, on this piece because you know how uh, <laughs> uh, I just have a lot of views about um, the way change rooms uh, have been designed over <laughs> the years. I, of course, grew up playing football and I'm completely at home with, um, the locker room situations, you know, like wide open showers. And I've, I've, uh, I've showered in, in numerous places from, you know, hockey rinks next to football fields to, uh, to uh, Iverwind stadium. Right. So, so I've, I've experienced the good and the bad. What I will say is snow labs showering facilities themselves are excellent. They're very private. Uh, the shower uh, was warm right away. This is almost a Yelp review on their on their shower facilities. But what I will say is this: what I wasn't ready for was uh, <laughs> it's fine to have a nice private shower facility. I wasn't expecting the twenty foot uh, uh, walk naked after <laughs> yeah. we disrobed. Yeah. They could they could probably shorten that that period so that you're not <laughs> walking one by one each behind each other uh, nude to the showers, but. Uh, we were actually there at a good time. We weren't there with the regular Snow Lab staff. We kind of had it all to ourselves, and it was uh, and it was super comfortable and 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 it was good. So that's what I will say. If anyone is visiting Snow Lab, if you're fortunate enough to do that, the shower is no big deal. And as I say, I think in the episode, um, I was the most comfortable I've ever been in those nice blue suits. I was. Uh, you, it, it was it was a wonderful experience. You were gushing uh, about those suits, but I will say this because you're leaving this detail out that. Steve was doing a lot of research around the the process to get in. And one of the things that he was, he had seemed to be concerned about was that the idea that we'd be wearing, I think he, I don't know what you came across in your search review, but you, you thought we would be have to wear mesh <laughs> underwear. And I think yeah. we can also dispel that they give you real underwear that's been washed obviously uh, for each yeah. use. But uh, I was wearing fruit of the loom. I believe, I think you had a comfy pair of, uh, Haynes. Haynes, there you go. So again, yeah. if you're worried like Steve was about wearing mesh underwear, have no fear. They've got nothing but the best underground for uh, for their guests at Snow Lab. Where do we get our our Haynes on you? Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, lovely time. Uh, the content of the episode really uh, delves deep, pardon the pun, into sort of the uh, the kinds of things going on at Snow Lab and also into uh, into Jody's background and journey as always uh, with the unlikely innovators. So thank you for joining at these new depths we've reached. Yes, we, uh, and it, again, we, we are, we couldn't be happier about sinking to the depths that we've reached, but, but again, yeah. Um, the last thing I'll say is that because that was our first on location in-person podcast, it's actually kind of hard to believe that we've been doing this now for, it'll be almost two years in the summer 
And, you know, Zoom's great because a lot of the people we've connected with, we wouldn't have been able to connect with in person, but we're hoping to do a few more of those. So stay tuned. I don't want to give any details away just yet because obviously things can change, uh, but that's not the first or the, that's, I guess, no, sorry. No, it is that the first. Be, it, it was the first, but it won't be the last time that you see Steve and I on location. So stay tuned. Uh, thanks for tuning in this week. There's no shower footage. Take care. <laughs> The Unlikely Innovators with Mike Comito and Steve Gravel. Presented by Cambrian R&D and the Center for Smart Mining.